The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Against the will of the people. It's Thursday, December 21st, 2017. Happy holidays, and thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news through the links of my sponsors and the PayPal button at buzzburbank.com. Major changes to our tax laws and the end of a fair and open Internet, both executed by a Republican president and a Republican Congress against the will of the people. As a president reaching the end of his first year in office, Donald Trump and his Republican Congress had just one last chance to accomplish something on their agenda. And they succeeded with an 1,100-page document that outlines the biggest changes in our tax code in 30 years. It is also the most unpopular piece of legislation in 30 years. It is a redistribution of wealth from the middle class and the poor to the already wealthy. So what is the will of the people? An NBC News poll says fewer than one in four of us thinks the Republican tax bill is a good idea. Despite that, with no hearings and without a single vote from a Democrat, a $1.5 trillion tax bill passed with razor-thin support, adding the entire cost to the national debt. The final version of the bill, approved by both the Republican House and the Republican Senate and signed by the Republican president, gives an even bigger tax break to the rich than the original versions. And while most of us will see a tax break next year, most of us will pay more eight years from now. Republicans focused on keeping their jobs in next fall's midterm elections want you to see a bump in your paycheck now, even if it means losing or paying more for your health care right after the election. But their tax bill is so unpopular, Democrats have now taken the lead over Republicans when it comes to the national opinion of which party can better manage the economy. The public also gives higher scores to Democrats on taxes and especially on looking out for the middle class. In fact, two-thirds of us think this tax cut is for corporations and the wealthy. It is, in fact, the biggest corporate tax cut ever. Only 7% of us believe the Republican claim that this tax package is to help the middle class. So few of us believe it because it isn't true. Although you may see a bump in your paycheck and higher insurance premiums, you won't know precisely how the tax law changes affect you until April of 2019. Under this new tax law, the average poor family will get an extra 60 bucks a year. A super-rich family gets... $200,000. And the new rules cut the corporate tax rate permanently from 35% to 21%. Tax cuts for small businesses and individuals are temporary, expiring after 8 to 10 years. When that day comes, up to 70% of us would see our taxes increase. When that day comes, 83% of the benefits in this law go to the top 1% of earners. The rich get richer. The plan Americans hated in those polls gave the wealthy 62% of the benefit, now it's 83. Many of the deductions that had been allowed for working Americans will be gone. The amount homeowners can deduct for their mortgage interest is now capped, and middle-class workers in high-tax states will actually pay higher taxes. In fact, middle-class families in some states will get a cut, while families making exactly the same money in a neighboring state will pay more. Middle- and low-income families will also be hurt by the Republican removal of the Obamacare mandate. Obamacare is essentially gutted with this tax bill. 
That makes health insurance unaffordable for 13 million people by raising the premiums another 10%. There are clear winners and losers in the Republicans' tax bill. Among them, the nation's 1.5 million charities because donations to them are no longer deductible. That includes churches. Although people give out of kindness, their tax deduction provided an extra incentive, especially if it meant keeping the donor in a lower tax bracket. Now, under the Republican tax law, it's expected that 28 million fewer people will donate to charities. It means charities will lose some $13 billion a year. There is still time to make a donation this year before the Republican tax law goes into effect in a couple of weeks. The New York Times reports the big winners are major real estate developers like Donald Trump, despite his claim that the tax bill would, quote, cost me a fortune. That real estate tax cut will cost the government nearly $415 billion, which is nearly 30 times as much as the children's health insurance program Republicans say we cannot afford. That program, which expired at summer's end, gave health care to 9 million American children. The other big losers, people who have to buy their own health insurance, people in high-tax states, the elderly on Medicare, and low-income households without Social Security numbers. Also hurt? Puerto Rico, where the economy is already fragile. Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, will be better off, along with others who pass their business income through their personal income so they can pay the individual rate instead of the corporate rate. Pass-throughs get a massive 20% tax cut. Corporations also get a big tax cut, especially those that keep trillions of dollars in offshore accounts where the U.S. tax system cannot touch them. And American companies will no longer have to pay full corporate taxes on future money they make overseas, giving them even more reason to hide their incomes. For that reason, the Republicans' tax bill, despite Trump's promises of bringing jobs back home, is likely to push more American jobs overseas, the opposite of what Trump promised. The bill also benefits the wealthy by cutting the estate tax. They can now leave $22 million to their kids tax-free. People who can afford private schools can now save untaxed money to pay for primary and secondary schools, as well as colleges. Other winners include private equity fund managers, who get to keep their loopholes even though Trump promised to eliminate them. Winners are also likely to be lawyers and the tax preparation companies who will be busier than ever, despite Trump's promise to put them out of business. Confused taxpayers are likely to beat down the doors at the likes of H&R Block. Quicken will have to rewrite its TurboTax software for next year. And the IRS is the likely big loser, now buried in over 500 pages of new rules that are supposed to go into effect in a few days. Normally, a major new law gets a lead time to give government time to prepare. Obamacare took four years to implement after its passage. The IRS will also need new software. And the IRS isn't exactly ready, since its budget has been repeatedly slashed by the same Republicans who just buried it in work. And that's not likely to change soon, since the IRS is, under Trump, still operating with an interim director. Republicans have slandered the IRS, hammering it with investigations and cutting its manpower and refusing to upgrade its equipment. They've cut the IRS budget by nearly a billion dollars, a 17% cut. 21,000 IRS employees had to be let go, cutting the workforce by 23%, all while processing 10% more returns last year. And right away, the IRS will have to work up these new tax tables 
so employers will know how much to deduct from the New Year's first paychecks and create those forms with fewer people and out-of-date equipment. But the same Republicans who slammed the IRS are now asking it to implement their new tax code using an outdated system insiders say is likely to collapse. Refunds will be delayed. Cybersecurity will suffer. And audits will be so rare people will be less inclined to pay what they owe. As Trump put it during the campaign, paying as little as possible is the American way. With manpower cut, good luck getting IRS help on the phone. Good luck to your employer's payroll company to figure out what your deductions are supposed to be and to be able to do that quickly enough. Good luck to us all. Most Americans don't believe the Republicans claim that these massive changes in our tax laws will get them higher pay and lower taxes. The vast majority of us do not believe their bill will make the nation's economy grow. Most of us don't expect it will help us as individuals much at all. Quinnipiac puts the tax plan's approval rating at 25%. Only a third of us believe we as individuals will even see a tax cut. In truth, one reliable study on the bill says it will lower taxes for about three out of four Americans, and Republicans are hoping that pleasant surprise will earn them votes in the midterm elections in the coming year. Wish them luck with that. Fewer than one in five Americans believe they'd been helped by W's tax cuts that actually were aimed at the working class. But a new poll gives the current Republican tax package a disapproval rating of nearly 60%. Two out of three of us believe it does far more to help the rich than it does the middle class. Fewer than one in three of us believe it'll give the economy a boost. Nearly three-fourths of us think Trump should release his tax returns, according to a CNN poll. Against the will of the people, Trump continues to hide his taxes, and against the will of the people, he's signing that tax bill. Lawmakers will soon return to their home districts where they are likely to meet more angry protesters whose will has been ignored. Republicans appear to have rushed through their tax bill to try to avoid more pressure from protesters. In that rush, they realized their automatic spending cuts to Medicare and other programs would go into effect now, so Trump's signing of this Christmas present bill won't come until January 3rd. Why did Republicans ignore the nonpartisan studies and the protests to give a big tax break to corporations and the wealthy? Because their campaign donors insisted on it. Republican lawmakers ignored the voters to get advertising money they believe will get them reelected about 10 months from now. So we shall see which speaks louder at the polls. Big advertising or the will of the people. As forecast here last week, against the will of the American people, Trump's FCC killed net neutrality. Broadband companies may now legally block you from certain websites and steer you into others. The government can no longer regulate high-speed Internet in the way it has always regulated the phone companies as a common utility. The FCC's decision serves Trump's goal of deregulating business. It will take a few weeks for the new rules, or lack thereof, to go into effect. Even then, broadband companies are expected to be shy about taking advantage of their new freedom and their newfound control at first, for now. In the meantime, the change is being challenged in a lawsuit by a number of states' attorneys general, while Democratic lawmakers in Washington push for a bill to bring back the now-dead level playing field known as net neutrality. 
The public hates the FCC's decision, including 75% of registered Republican voters. Only one in five Republican voters agrees with the Trump administration's decision to kill net neutrality. But it was done against the will of the people. So from taxes to your internet, this Congress and this president have repeatedly moved against the people's will. That's easier to do when you're ignoring them. The White House has removed from its website the page that allowed any American to start or sign a petition. The White House says this is temporary, that the petition tool will only be gone for a month or so. But since Trump's inauguration, the White House has flat ignored the petitions, not answering one, even though it's required to answer all the ones that gather 100,000 signatures or more. There have been 17 such petitions filed on the White House site since Trump's inauguration that gathered 100,000 names or more, and none of those petitions have been answered. Several of the 100,000 name petitions call on Trump to release his tax returns and put his assets into a blind trust. The White House says it will start answering this year's petitions next year, starting at the end of January. That's also when the Trump administration will put up an all-new petition page. The White House hasn't said why it's changing the website. It's worth noting the petition page was created in the Obama administration. And there is evidence this administration does like to keep tabs on its critics. So sign at your own risk. Even before a Republican government had thrown the same kind of chaos into taxes and the Internet they've thrown into health care, the voting public has fought back against the party that's ignoring them. Democratic victories abound in elections across the country as the Republican grip starts to slip. Democrats have won six seats so far this year to the Republicans' zero. Nearly three dozen state house seats have flipped from red to blue just since Trump got elected, even in Iowa and Oklahoma and in a district in New Hampshire that Trump won just over a year ago. There have been senatorial and gubernatorial wins for the Dems in New Jersey, Alabama, and Virginia. There was almost another one in Virginia this week, a surprise victory that appeared to take the Virginia legislature out of Republican control for the first time in 17 years. After a recount in one district, the Democrat, Shelley Simons, went from a 10-vote deficit to a one-vote victory. It appeared the Republicans had lost their grip on Virginia's State House by just one vote. But a vote for the Republican in this race that had been disqualified was re-included yesterday afternoon by a three-judge federal panel. The court declared the race a tie. The winner will now be chosen in a drawing, each name in an identical film canister, one of them drawn from a fishbowl. Yes, a fishbowl. Even then, the loser could ask for a second recount. In the meantime, Republicans still control the Virginia House by two votes in the squeakiest of squeaky elections. Democrats on the ballot in Virginia got 20,000 more votes than Republican candidates and still didn't win control of the House because of gerrymandering, redistricting for political advantage. But it is these Democratic victories and near victories that set the stage for the midterm election in the very near 2018. A new CNN poll shows a wide majority of us plan to vote Democrat and that we're enthusiastic about it. Only one in three Americans favor the Republicans at the moment, and they are less enthusiastic about voting. Don't tell the president anything that will upset him. 
Picking up on a story by the Washington Post, The Hill is reporting that Trump's daily intelligence updates are often crafted in a way that won't displease him. The Post reported that officials would not say whether the president's received any recent briefings on Russia, at least not verbally. A former intelligence official familiar with the situation says Trump is easily upset with talk about Russia and then throws the entire briefing off track. The source says many times intel on Russia is in the written report, which they suspect he does not read. Or, says this former intelligence official, they just leave it out of the report completely. A former advisor to the first President Bush says this situation has to make Putin believe that meddling in our election, quote, was the most successful intelligence operation in the history of Russian or Soviet intelligence. Thanks to Trump's distrust of U.S. intelligence, he's done nothing to investigate Russia's election interference and has therefore done nothing to keep it from happening in the election that's now less than a year away. It was just a few days ago that Putin and Trump last talked by phone. Vlad called Sunday to thank the American president for the CIA tip that prevented a terrorist attack in Russia's St. Petersburg. Until Trump took the oath, the White House typically kept the public posted on which world leaders the president would or had been speaking with and usually what they'd been talking about. But the Trump organization doesn't bother with that, which is why we learned of Sunday's phone call from a Russian news and propaganda outlet. Sure, the White House confirmed that phone call afterward, but we would not have known about it were it not for the Russians. It was Russia that also informed us of four other conversations between Trump and Putin, the one four days ago, as well as two in November, and earlier this year when Trump invited Russian officials into the Oval Office. American reporters were kept out of that meetup. It was Russian photographers who were in the Oval Office that day snapping pictures. Sunday's chat was the second conversation in three days between Trump and Putin and the fifth in the past year we found out about from the Russians instead of from the U.S. government. The Trump administration has promptly reported all the president's other chats with other foreign leaders, but not when it comes to Putin. A week ago today, Trump thanked Putin for calling America's strong economy one of Trump's successes. It was August 17th when candidate Trump got his first classified intelligence briefing. Clinton got one, too, at around that time. The FBI had seen evidence that Russia was trying to monkey with the election and included that intel in both briefings, warning the candidates, including Trump, to alert the FBI if they saw or heard anything from any Russians. By that time, Trump's people had been in contact with Russian operatives at least seven times, and the FBI knew it when they asked. Trump didn't speak up at that meeting to say that his son, son-in-law, and campaign manager had already met with a gaggle of Russians the month before in Trump Tower. Trump didn't reveal then and didn't reveal it later. He just sat there and listened to the FBI warning without comment. Whether Trump then told any of his campaign officials about the FBI warning is not yet known. Certainly no one in the campaign ever contacted the FBI about their contacts with 19 Russians in the course of the campaign, which continued into the transition. Even after Trump took office, the FBI took Trump Communications Director Hope Hicks into a secured room to warn that the Russians who had contacted her were not who they claimed to be. Putin's flattery about thwarting that terror attack also prompted Trump to 
called his Homeland Security Secretary Mike Pompeo to congratulate him, his people, and, quote, the entire intelligence community on a job well done. Those are ironic words from a president who's recently described the FBI as disgraceful and in tatters, a president who's criticized American intelligence for its competence and compared its agents to Nazis and questioned their abilities. He's called the FBI's handling of the Clinton emails rigged, and he's called its Russia investigation a witch hunt and a Democratic hoax. Trump insists he won the election fair and square, not because of help from Russia, but instead because he's Donald Trump. He doesn't want an asterisk on his victory, and he especially doesn't want that victory revoked. Trump is so focused on protecting that win, he ignored his closest advisors on Inauguration Week. He believes admitting that Putin helped him get elected is an insult. Those advisors, including Jared Kushner and Reince Priebus, tried to convince the president that admitting the Russian interference supporting U.S. intelligence would not tarnish his political success. But he didn't listen. According to the Washington Post, which spoke with more than 50 past and present officials from the campaign, the transition, and Trump's White House, along with members of the intelligence community. The Post reports that Kushner, Priebus, and others tried to convince Trump that if he could put the Russia matter behind him, then he would be more free to develop that close relationship with Putin he had been craving. But Trump wouldn't listen and got angry instead. He reportedly believed that admitting Russians had hacked Hillary's emails was a trap, according to the paper's sources. So the U.S., for the first time in history, is not responding to a national security threat, not responding to an attack because of what the Post describes as the president's personal insecurities. The Trump administration has taken no steps whatsoever in making a plan to prevent future election interference, and because it's a sore subject with Trump, national security officials are afraid to bring it up. That's the upset they're trying to avoid when they steer our current president clear of what they continue to learn about Russia's email-stealing, propaganda-spreading attack on the U.S. This deeply concerns even the Texas Republican who chairs the House Homeland Security Committee. Congressman Mike McCall, who was considered to run Homeland Security for Trump, now says the president needs to stand up to Moscow, quote, more forcefully. McCall, like the intelligence community he helps oversee, says Russia's successful interference worries him. The threat, he says, is ever-evolving, getting worse by the day. That's a quote. Trump's state of denial also deeply concerns our closest allies who see Russia for what it is, what it's done to elections in a number of countries. But the U.S. interference is being celebrated in the Kremlin, toasting a cyber-based active measures campaign that began early in 2016. Russian intelligence reportedly describes its work as a tremendous success, especially having pulled it off at under a half million dollars. It's a tremendous win for Putin, who, like a third of American voters, despised Hillary Clinton. This past week, more than any other, has carried widespread anxiety about Republican efforts to kill the Russia investigations, about whether Trump would pardon the key witness so far, his former national security advisor Mike Flynn, and about whether Trump might fire Bob Mueller. A lot of the anxiety was spurred by Trump's cliffhanger comment last Friday that he, quote, didn't want to talk about pardons with Michael Flynn yet. We'll see, said Trump. He again claimed Americans are, quote, very, very angry about the FBI and Justice Department handling of the Clinton investigation, which was closed without any charges being filed against her. 
Since those ominous remarks, White House lawyer Ty Cobb assured, quote, there is no consideration being given to pardoning Michael Flynn at the White House. And Trump echoed that when he returned to the White House Sunday night. As for the investigations on Capitol Hill, I'm increasingly worried, says California's Adam Schiff, who's the ranking Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee. Schiff says he's worried Republicans will shut down that committee's investigation of Trump-Russia by the end of this month, which is now just a few days away. Schiff is also worried Republicans want to shut down Bob Mueller's investigation. He says increased attacks on Mueller, the FBI, and the Justice Department by Republican lawmakers, quote, make it clear they plan to go after Mueller's investigation. To which Schiff adds, we cannot let that happen. And yet, last night, we learned that Republicans led by House Intelligence Committee Chairman Devin Nunes have been running their own secret investigation on the side, using classified documents gathered for the Trump-Russia probe to try to build a case to discredit dossier author Christopher Steele, the FBI, and Bob Mueller. They hope to prove that the investigation is political and that our biggest law enforcement institutions have mishandled the Steele dossier, perhaps criminally. This cadre of like-minded Republicans has been meeting behind closed doors for weeks, egged on by Fox News, which has called the Mueller investigation an attempted coup of the U.S. government. Over in the Senate, however, where there are three Trump-Russia investigations, Republicans are trying to defend Robert Mueller. Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley says, there are all kinds of reasons to believe there's political interference, and we ought to get to the bottom of it, adding, I've got confidence in Mueller. Missouri Senator Roy Blunt is another Republican defending Mueller, calling him a very capable guy. Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, who helps lead the Judiciary Committee, says Mueller fired the opinionated FBI agent who slammed Trump in text while also working on the investigation. The agent was fired to protect the integrity of the investigation. I liked that, says Lindsey Graham. As for firing Bob Mueller, Trump would do so at his own political peril. Nobody is above the law rallies are planned for cities around the country, and judging from the organizing, there's one near you. Organized by MoveOn.org, those who wish to join the protest have been asked to gather at the designated points at 5 p.m. if Mueller is fired before 2 in the afternoon. If Mueller's fired after 2, the rallies will begin the following day at noon. Trump and his lawyer have both said in recent days there are no plans to fire Mueller, but there's increasing evidence they're setting the stage for that. They have accused Mueller of breaking the law by having emails from the Trump transition team. They've accused the Mueller team of bias because of some out-of-context text messages from an FBI agent who worked for Mueller. That agent was removed from the investigation six months ago, and co-workers say his work never reflected any bias at all. Team Trump is also turning up the heat on the man who can hire and fire a special prosecutor, namely Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. Rosenstein told Congress last week he thinks Mueller's acting properly and that there is no need to fire him. Trump, meanwhile, has reportedly referred to Rosenstein as a threat to his presidency. Trump's also called Rosenstein a Democrat, which means Trump doesn't even know that Rosenstein's actually a Republican. Trump has the authority to fire Rosenstein and replace him with someone who would fire Bob Mueller. So multiple attacks on Rosenstein by Trump, his lawyers, and other Republicans do set the stage for the firing of Robert Mueller. And here's why that could happen. Trump's lawyers will meet tomorrow with the special counsel's lawyers. Trump's lawyers have been telling him 
that the Mueller probe should be over by New Year's Eve and that he will be cleared of any wrongdoing. Trump's reportedly even expecting a letter of exoneration from Mueller. So Trump's lawyers had to be concerned when they read in the Washington Post this week that members of Mueller's team say they expect to continue their work through 2018. Trump's lawyers and everyone else would be rightly concerned about how this president might react to that, especially considering the two strikes Trump has already called on Mueller just in the past week. Salon.com's Bob Seska believes Trump will try to dump Robert Mueller, and he lays out his case in this week's commentary. Bob? Thank you, Buzz. Everyone seems to agree that special counsel Robert Mueller will be fired by President Trump at some point, perhaps even this week. We're also in general agreement about how such a decision would spark a wide-reaching constitutional crisis that could include Trump going full Erdogan and conducting mass arrests against an alleged deep state coup. All of the preparations are being made, including and especially the crucial messaging to the 35 percenters, the seemingly immovable Trump loyalists who, at least for now, appear to be wagging the Republican Party dog. Fox News and AM Talk radio hosts are collectively softening the ground by convincing their easily led audiences that Mueller is a Democratic Party operative who's acting on some kind of vendetta against Trump by perpetuating a hoax. And now with Trump's lawyers screeching about thousands of Trump transition era emails being acquired from the Government Services Administration, the threat against Mueller has reached stratospheric heights. We also know that Fox News is a Trump echo chamber, both talking directly to and advising the president, the network's audience of one, while also framing his dementia and warped despotism as somehow presidential and undeniably successful. All of the pieces seem to be falling into place, leading us to the inevitable conclusion that Mueller is toast. However, when asked whether he was planning to can the special counsel on Sunday, Trump snapped, no, I'm not. If your first reaction was, that means he's definitely firing Mueller soon, you nailed it. The trick here regarding Sunday's denial is that he can't legally fire Mueller, but he can absolutely fire Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general who, following Jeff Sessions' recusal, became the Justice Department's designated overseer of the special counsel's office. And, of course, Rosenstein is the only official who can directly shut down the Mueller investigation. That said, Rosenstein told the House Judiciary Committee last week that he has full confidence in the special counsel. So if Trump wants to fire Mueller, it'll have to be through his own version of Nixon's Saturday Night Massacre, in which he orders Rosenstein to fire Mueller. When Rosenstein refuses, the obvious reaction, Trump will fire Rosenstein, and then he'll order Rosenstein's likely replacement, Associate AG Rachel Brand, to fire Mueller instead. If she refuses to fire Mueller, then Trump could fire her, replacing Brand with Solicitor General Noel Francisco, and so on and so on. Another option for Trump is to merely replace Rosenstein with a new deputy AG who's handpicked by Trump from the outside and who pledges an oath to Trump that he or she would fire Mueller upon being sworn in. One way or another, Trump can look his loyalists in the eye and say he didn't fire Mueller and, crazily enough, they'll buy it. Appointing an outside replacement for Rosenstein, however, will be a tough climb, given that even the Senate Republicans will balk at replacing Rosenstein with any nominee who might fire Mueller and right in the midst of a constitutional crisis. No matter what Trump's mindset is right now, he's capable of anything because, as we've been observing for months, Trump exists in the eternal now. Whatever occurred before is irrelevant, as are future repercussions. It's episodic to him rather than serialized. 
This leads me to believe that Trump's no, I'm not hesitant to admit he wants to destroy the Trump-Russia investigation has little to do with a genuine concern about the political and constitutional ramifications. It seemed more like a slippery and momentary dodge than a genuine decision to allow Mueller to continue uninterrupted. Perhaps we're also observing here Trump's childish lethal weapon concept of political strategy, in which he thinks being the unhinged, unpredictable rigs contrasted against Rosenstein's pro-Mueller, I'm-too-old-for-this-shit Murtaugh, is a winning path forward for him, as if the process of keeping all of us guessing about the crazy president will somehow augment his control over the national conversation. This might work to a certain extent in Trump's former world of reality show television and supermarket tabloids, but as a sensible plan for mitigating his own legal jeopardy, it serves to highlight Trump as an erratic, destabilizing monster capable of abusing his power as a means of enforcing his emerging authoritarian stranglehold on the Western world. Simply put, it makes him seem guiltier by the day. All told, it's possible that Trump believes the undermining of Mueller might be a better way to proceed than to literally fire him. It avoids an ugly constitutional crisis, builds his brand as an unpredictable troll, and still undermines both the authority and ramifications of Mueller's inquisition. But it's a temporary plan that could be abandoned at any second if and when Trump determines that Mueller's process is continuing uninterrupted and that Mueller's reach is getting too close to Trump's face. Bottom line, anything can happen. Trump, by mandate, is all about chaos and disruption. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thanks, Bob. Get more of him at Salon.com and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at RealmNetwork.com. Join me there with him every Tuesday. Meanwhile, the Mueller investigation appears to be picking up steam after already ensnaring four key members of the Trump campaign team. We learned this past week Mueller's asked the data firm that worked for the Trump campaign to turn over whatever relevant documents it has. Mueller's request was actually filed earlier this fall, asking for all emails to and from employees of the data firm Cambridge Analytica. That's the same company that has worked to get Britain out of the European Union, and is currently being used in the Brazilian elections. It is also the same company used by former Trump advisor Steve Bannon, who also has financial ties to Cambridge Analytica. Mueller has also gotten hold of thousands of emails exchanged by members of the Trump transition team, his top staff, between Election Day and Inauguration Day. Among those staffers, Mike Flynn, who is now fully cooperating with Mueller's investigators. It may have been because of what Flynn has had to say that Mueller went after those transition team documents. A lawyer for the transition team has since accused Mueller of getting those emails illegally. The emails were freely handed to Mueller by the General Services Administration, which handles transition operations for the U.S. government. A lawyer for the Trump transition team says those emails were not GSAs to give, and the lawyer says he wants the emails back. It was during the transition that the CIA Director John Brennan, the National Intelligence Director James Clapper, and FBI Director James Comey went as a team to meet with Trump to tell him they had found Vladimir Putin's specific instructions on the election interference campaign. The trio says they were worried that Trump would explode at this news. Instead, they say he was courteous and affable. But that was before Trump had learned about the salacious steel dossier. And that's when things changed. This week, Clapper, Brennan, and National Security Agency Director Michael Hayden chimed in 
on a lawsuit by three Democratic workers who were hacked by Russia during the campaign. That lawsuit is against the Trump campaign and the campaign advisor, Roger Stone. Brennan Hayden Cooper wanted on record that Russia typically uses what are known as local actors to do their bidding, for example, in the U.S. And a court brief filed by three top intelligence people is extremely unusual. It isn't done normally. Welcome to the age of this isn't normal, this has never happened before. The lawsuit of these three Democrats, now backed by three intelligence experts, accuses Roger Stone of being that local actor, getting the stolen Democratic emails to WikiLeaks, which published them just before the election and just 30 minutes after the genital-grabbing Access Hollywood tape was released. Trump takes on the world while losing support in Congress. The new seven banned words and more after this. There's probably someone you'd like to see over the holidays, but it's just not in the cards this year. That someone is special, and a card just wouldn't be enough. So do this. Go to proflowers.com and send something that expresses your feelings in a way a gift card cannot. Proflowers always sends the most amazing arrangements. And when I give Proflowers, which I do, that special someone is always impressed. Imagine their surprise when candy cane roses arrive. Perfect for the holidays and December birthdays. Or a miniature Christmas tree with lights and ornaments. There are lots of choices and there's still time. And no matter which ones you select for $29 or more, you get 20% off because you listen to Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Pro Flowers bouquets are guaranteed to stay fresh for at least seven days or your money back. And as always, you pick the delivery date. And yes, there is still time. Again, get 20% off all bouquets of $29 or more when you go to proflowers.com and use the code REALM at checkout. That's R-E-L-M in the discount code box when you check out at proflowers.com. Thanks also for supporting this show through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. Make no mistake, Trump is pushing forward with his plans to restock the federal courts with conservative judges. Normally, confirmation hearings for those judges wouldn't make the news. But the confirmation hearings for Trump's nominees have revealed he's selected not only conservatives, but individuals who are totally unqualified for the job, much like the people Trump's chosen to run various government departments. Too many of the nominees have been rated as not qualified by the American Bar Association. The ABA's been ranking lawyers without bias since the 1950s. This trouble for Trump started early last week when the White House had to withdraw two nominees, one for comparing homosexuality to bestiality and calling transgender kids part of Satan's plan, the other nominee for blogging nice stuff about the Ku Klux Klan. At a certain point, even Judiciary Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley had to speak up about those nominees, prompting the White House to withdraw those nominations. The nominee most embarrassing to the Trump administration, however, is attorney Matthew Peterson, who's been working at the Federal Election Commission. At his confirmation hearing, it was revealed that Peterson has no trial experience, no judicial experience, and was unable to answer any of the basic legal questions he was asked. The video of his lack of knowledge went viral. Now nearly everyone has seen just how unqualified a Trump nominee can be, and that the first requirement is that their politics be heavily conservative. 
They'd have to be pretty bad for Senator Grassley to object since he's largely been a rubber stamp for the dozen federal judge nominees so far, a record number for a president's first year in office. Even with the speed bumps caused by unqualified nominees, the effort to stock the nation's courts with strongly conservative judges is succeeding. Twelve judgeships down, 131 to go. For the first time since Trump took office, Republican lawmakers have learned to say no to a man they no longer fear, a president who no longer has the political clout he once did. And they drew a line at Michael Dorsen, who Trump had chosen to run the EPA's chemical safety division. Even Republicans were disturbed that Dorsen's last job was working for the chemical companies, generating evidence their chemicals were every bit as safe as the companies claimed. Even while awaiting confirmation to the government chemical safety gig, Dorson continued to consult these chemical companies as they kept cranking out their pesticides, flame retardants, and other unappetizing compounds. The Republicans who might recommend Dorson be confirmed never got around to scheduling a vote on that and ultimately announced they would not and could not support him. Republicans did not draw the line at making the head of the EPA a man who had sued that same agency or at making the head of the education department a woman who had worked to promote private schools over public. They did not draw a line at making former Texas governor and Dancing with the Stars alumnus Rick Perry the Secretary of Energy, even though he clearly had no idea what the agency does. But as Trump's political power fades, even Republicans are beginning to draw a line. Yesterday, the Republican-led Senate Banking Committee rejected Trump's choice to run the Export-Import Bank. It was a former congressman from New Jersey. Trump continues also to get resistance from the courts. A federal judge in Pennsylvania has blocked his attempt to roll back part of the Obamacare bill that requires employees to include birth control in their health insurance plans. Trump had given some employers an out by exempting companies that object if they feel the rule offends their religion. The judge ruled against Trump's policy, saying it would do enormous and irreversible harm to women. The legality of the Trump order still has to be decided in court, but thanks to that Pennsylvania judge's ruling, it is on hold until that decision is made. Next case. Yet another federal judge has ordered the Trump administration to stop blocking abortions sought by pregnant immigrants. The judge in this case ruled the administration must, quote, preserve the teen's constitutional right to decide whether to carry their pregnancies to term. And it is not some wild accusation that the Trump administration is banning seven words at the Centers for Disease Control. It's in the budget documents presented by the Trump administration. The CDC exists to protect the public health, and to ban it from using certain words would seem risky. The words banned are fetus, transgender, vulnerable, entitlement, diversity, evidence-based, and science-based. Banning health officials from using the words science-based. What could possibly go wrong? And with those seven words banned, no replacement words were offered in those Trump budget papers. There actually was a suggested replacement for science-based that goes, CDC bases its recommendations on science in consideration with community standards and wishes. Basing health decisions on standards and wishes? Again, what could possibly go wrong? Protesters have been using projectors to flash those banned words across the front of Trump's luxury hotel in Washington, adding the words, we will not be ignored.
The Trump administration's war on science is also being fought at the Environmental Protection Agency, and the people who've made the EPA their careers are fighting back. One wrote to EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt to express his concern about where the agency seems to be headed. Another went to a rally to protest the EPA's budget cuts. Another stood up at a luncheon and said she worries the nation's headed for an environmental catastrophe. And although these EPA employees are in different cities, they each soon afterward got requests for copies of any emails they had sent that mentioned either Pruitt or Trump, along with any emails that might have been somehow critical of where the agency is headed. These individuals were targeted in what an EPA employee is now calling the witch hunt. In fact, Scott Pruitt's EPA hired a federal contractor earlier this month to monitor the news media for stories about staff members who have publicly criticized Pruitt or Trump. The employees say they have a free speech right to express their opinions, and they do. The United Nations Security Council voted this week on a resolution to condemn Trump's recognition of Israel as the capital of Israel and that the U.S. would move its embassy to that divided city. The vote was 14 to 1, the U.S. voting not to condemn itself, of course. And since it only takes one key vote to stop a Security Council resolution, that was that. The resolution was dead. But the world's leaders, including our allies, made it clear they strongly disapprove of this major reversal of a decades-old U.S. foreign policy by Trump. Trump's U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley did not take the vote lightly, calling it an insult that would not be forgotten. The United States, she huffed, will not be told by any country where we can put our embassy. Trump's decisions on Jerusalem are so unpopular, Vice President Pence has postponed a trip there this week to try to mend fences because protesters have promised to greet him at every turn. Pence's office says he stayed in the U.S. to see the tax bill across the finish line. We'll be watching to see when he reschedules that trip to Jerusalem. Rex Tillerson spoke out of turn again, but then it's never his turn. As Secretary of State, Tillerson has tried to take a more peaceful, less bombastic approach to foreign affairs than his boss, Donald Trump. Last week at this time, we were reporting Tillerson's offer to talk with North Korea about anything, including the weather, just to get that country to the negotiating table to head off a nuclear or any other kind of war. As I reported last week, Tillerson had given Kim Jong-un the thing he has long wanted to force the U.S. to the bargaining table with his nuclear capability. South Korea loved the idea. But Tillerson did not clear his offer with the White House, where Trump has taken a much tougher stand. Even though the Obama administration refused to meet with North Korea unless and until it stopped its nuclear weapons program. So it was not surprising that the day after our reporting on Tillerson's offer last week, he backpedaled on that offer. By Friday, Tillerson was saying that even with nukes, North Korea has to earn the right to negotiate with the U.S. And then on Tuesday of this week, North Korea announced it has no interest in talks with the U.S. so long as there are preconditions. Powerful men continue to be brought down now that fewer women are reluctant to say, me too. The owner of the NFL's Carolina Panthers says he'll sell the team he created at the end of this season. The first public sign of trouble came when the team announced on Friday it was investigating alleged conduct on the part of Panthers owner Jerry Richardson. 
On Sunday, the NFL announced it had taken over that investigation and that it plans to hire an outside lawyer. Sports Illustrated reports that at least four former team employees had gotten substantial settlement checks in exchange for their signatures on non-disclosure agreements. Richardson is leaving now rather than face discipline from the NFL. The purging of those who abuse their power for sex spread this week to sports and the courts. A powerful judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals has retired effective immediately after accusations of subjecting women to inappropriate sexual behavior. Kaczynski, like some, has apologized. Like those in show business, politics, and sports, Ninth Circuit Judge Alex Kaczynski is also leaving rather than to face an investigation. Also stepping down now means he gets to keep his pension. Again, welcome to the age of this kind of thing doesn't usually happen. Rarely, if ever, has a federal judge left the bench in scandal and his absence, Kaczynski's absence, will be felt all the way to the Supreme Court, which has often hired Kaczynski's law clerks to be its law clerks. Former Silicon Valley star T.J. Miller is accused of physical and sexual assault by a woman he dated at George Washington University 16 years ago. The woman says Miller assaulted her twice, punching her in the mouth during sex and choking and anally penetrating her without her consent. Miller denies the allegation, posting a pic of him hugging his wife on Instagram. In a joint statement, the couple calls the woman's claim an unfortunate resurgence of her lies. They say the woman has been trying to break up the couple since those college years for 16 years. And in their statement, Mr. and Mrs. Miller say the accuser was kicked out of the school's comedy group due to disturbing behavior. Comedy Central has canceled Miller's late-night show but says that decision was made before this story broke. And another one bites the dust on Capitol Hill, sort of. Democratic Congressman Reuben Cahuane says he won't run for re-election in 2018 after all. He denies the two sexual harassment allegations against him and says he looks forward to clearing his name with the House Ethics Committee investigation. And at the same time, at least four senators are urging Minnesota Senator Al Franken to rescind his resignation. And two of those senators are among those who had called for his resignation two weeks ago. West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, who thought Franken shouldn't have resigned in the first place, says Senator Franken was railroaded by his fellow Democrats. What they did to Al was atrocious, says Manchin. Although Minnesota's governor has already named a replacement for Franken, the senator said in his resignation speech three weeks ago he'd be leaving in the coming weeks. For many, that meant there was still time for Franken to return, but Franken says his replacement is a good one and that he's already working with her transition team. And Boston's archbishop, when the church's child sex scandal broke, has died at the age of 86. He'd been quite sick for some time. Cardinal John Bernard Law was forced to resign 15 years ago after the Boston Globe's investigative unit learned the cardinal had covered up for pedophile priests by moving them to other parishes while ignoring the victims. A movie about that journalism, Spotlight, won the Oscar for Best Picture last year. Pope Francis says Law will be given a cardinal's funeral. The top executive at Amtrak has apologized for the train derailment near Seattle this week that killed three people and left dozens of others injured. It happened just south of Seattle in DuPont, Washington. The train, which was doing 80 in a 30-mile zone, spun off the tracks on a curve leading toward a bridge. 
The cars separated and went separate ways, some falling off the left side of the bridge, some off the right, to the interstate highway below, where commuters were going to their jobs in cars. Positive train control had been installed but wasn't yet up and running as this high-speed train made its maiden voyage with passengers. And unusually, there was a second person in the cab of the train's engine car, a conductor who wanted to be an engineer. The on-duty engineer may have been distracted by that conductor. Trump immediately blamed a crumbling infrastructure and tweeted, Not for long! Trump had not only jumped the gun on the cause of the crash, he had again contradicted himself since he's proposed a 43% cut in the nation's railroad budget at a time more money is needed. While federal investigators study the derailment, the head of Amtrak calls the wreck a wake-up call and said his company is determined to run the safest railroad in the world. It's not acceptable that we are involved in these kinds of accidents, said CEO Richard Anderson, adding, we are terribly sorry. In California, firefighters are still battling what's now the second biggest fire in that state's history. The Thomas Fire, as it's called, started burning more than two weeks ago, expanding to around 270,000 acres. It's as big as New York City. They had it at 55% contained when the winds picked up again yesterday. Firefighters had been hoping to have it mostly under control so some of them could go home for Christmas. The governor of Puerto Rico has ordered a recount of the number of people who died because of Hurricane Maria. The official cause of death was 64, but a New York Times investigation put it at over 1,000. The lack of power and communication have made reporting difficult even now, a full three months after a storm devastated that U.S. territory. There will be no lights for Christmas for many. For many, there will be no lights until next summer. The man accused of plowing his car into a crowd of protesters in Charlottesville, Virginia in August is now facing charges of first-degree murder. 20-year-old James Alex Field from Ohio had, at first, been charged with second-degree murder after his alleged violence caused the death of 32-year-old Heather Hayer. He also faces felony hit-and-run charges and five felony counts of aggravated malicious wounding. Heather's death came as she and others protested against a white supremacist rally which included participants from other states like Ohio. In the hearing that elevated the murder charge against James Alex Fields, his lawyer argued that her client had apologized on the scene and cried when he heard Heather Hare had been killed. His case goes before a grand jury on Monday. A grand jury in Pennsylvania, meanwhile, has issued a blistering report about drunken fraternity hazings at Penn State. The jurors accused Penn State of being apathetic and of failing to prevent these hazings. The report was inspired by the death of a sophomore who died while pledging Beta Theta Pi at Penn State earlier this year. The grand jury report blames the school and state lawmakers for resisting policy changes to prevent hazings that require pledges to drink dangerous amounts of alcohol. The Pennsylvania drinking age is 21. This year's dead pledge was 19. More than two dozen fraternity members now face criminal charges in the death of that sophomore. It's time for a change of pace from all this heavy news. It was a big week for space nerds. Santa needs a new ride. The Grinch goes to jail, hiding the pickle and, oh, Christmas tree. In the third and final segment, up next. As you wrap up your last-minute holiday shopping, I'm once again asking you to do as much of that shopping as possible through my Amazon links at buzzburbank.com. You land right on your very own Amazon page. You get the same great prices as always. 
And if you believe in what we're doing here, it's very important you go to buzzburbank.com, click on that Amazon link, bookmark that page, and make it one of your favorites. Whether you're already a Prime member or just shopping Amazon, bookmarking and using that link delivers a small commission to this podcast at no extra charge to you. Amazon has nearly everything you need right at your door and in two days or less for Prime members, so you still have time for last-minute shopping. Plus, you get Amazon Prime Video, which comes with the Prime membership, along with music and books and more. So please, use my Amazon link if you make purchases for your office, school, church, or some other organization. And if my Amazon link's not right for you, you can also support this free news by clicking on the PayPal button just below the Amazon button in the upper right corner at buzzburbank.com. Wealthy people can have compassion. Many of them do. But a new study shows the poor are more compassionate. Money cannot buy happiness, but a study by the University of California at Irvine shows how we define happiness depends on how much money we have. The study found that high-income folk are happy about themselves, content because they are proud. They are amused by their comfort and success. Low-income Americans, meanwhile, find happiness in love and in caring about and for others. The poor tend more often to find happiness in the beauty of nature. The study measured these things by degree. The wealthy can also enjoy nature, but it doesn't provide them with the same degree of happiness it gives to the poor. And the study points out that even too much of a good thing can be a bad thing, that too much compassion can lead to burnout and resentment. Too much pride, on the other hand, can lead to narcissism and self-entitlement. The study found that neither rich nor poor are happier than the other. They just find that happiness in different ways. It was quite a week for outer space nerds, from the release of a new Star Wars movie to the first reused rocket to make a clean landing. A new crew has arrived on the International Space Station, and astronomers are finding new worlds that might support life. And then there are the just-unlocked secrets about the government study of UFOs. For seven years, Luis Elizondo headed a Pentagon project to collect everything he could on UFO sightings and to analyze that data. It was a $22 million pet project of then-Senate leader Harry Reid. All of this was hidden in the budget. Among the evidence Elizondo collected were three fascinating videos recorded by U.S. fighter jets. On these videos, you can hear the pilots gasp and shout when they see these objects vanish over the horizon at speeds they had never witnessed before, seemingly defying the laws of physics. The project reportedly ended five years ago for budget reasons, and we're finally hearing about it, that $22 million hidden within the Pentagon's $600 billion budget. In those five years, Elizondo has worked to release these videos to the public, and he has finally succeeded, and now investigates UFOs outside the government. And we finally know what the government has been denying for years. What we don't know, what no one seems to know, is what those objects are, where they're from, or why they're here. But somewhere, the truth is out there. Oh, and Star Wars The Last Jedi is, of course, the top movie in theaters this week, with $220 million in North American ticket sales last weekend. Ferdinand was in second place, with Coco falling to third. For previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please use my Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. Now, two weeks ago, I first reported about a new Tesla semi-truck 
electric and self-driving that could go 500 miles on a charge and get from 0 to 60 in 5 seconds. Last week, I reported that Anheuser-Busch had ordered 40 of them. This week, it's UPS, and that order is 125 Tesla semis. UPS already has some electric trucks and some that run on natural gas, propane, and other alternative fuels. In fact, UPS now has more than 8,500 alternative fuel vehicles around the world. Also this past week, Pepsi ordered 100 of the new Tesla trucks. There's no longer any FM radio in Norway. They shut it down this week. First country on the planet to do so. The entire country has switched from FM to DAB, or Digital Audio Broadcasting. The transition took a year, but broadcasts there now have clearer signals, and there are more stations that travel over greater distances. FM never did well in Norway because it's a line-of-sight method of broadcasting, and Norway has many mountains that get in the way. Digital also doesn't fade out when you go under a bridge. Doctors in Pittsburgh are using video games to get better at treating ER patients. The University of Pittsburgh's School of Medicine found in a study that an adventure video game improves an emergency room doc's ability to determine what level of care a patient needs. In ERs, says the doctor conducting the study, physicians must make decisions quickly and with incomplete information. With professional help, she created a video game called Night Shift to recalibrate an ER doctor's brain. The doctors who played the game outperformed other doctors and were still outperforming other doctors six months later. Its creator says the game was designed to tap into the part of the brain that uses experience and pattern recognition to make quick decisions without thought. Very cool. But wait, as influenza spreads across the land like a viral snowfall, there is better news to report about this year's flu vaccine. Now that this year's flu has been reported in more than two-thirds of the country, we're hearing the vaccine may be more effective than the lowly 10% first reported. It is the same bug as last year, H3N2, only stronger. But it's not stronger if you don't get it. And this year's vaccine is also the same as last year's. And it was effective about half the time, much better odds than 10%. The CDC is also reporting there's no need to avoid the vaccine just because you have an egg allergy. Although the vaccine is cultivated in eggs, health officials say there is now too little egg in the vaccine to cause any reaction. Life expectancy in the U.S. has dropped for the second year in a row and opioids get the blame. Opioid deaths are up 21% just in the last year, according to the CDC, which was careful not to use any of its banned words. 41,000 Americans died of opioid overdose in 2016, 41,000, and experts say that number could be undercounted by 20% or more. The opioid epidemic is now deadlier than AIDS. The average life expectancy for a man is now 76, for a woman it's 81. Because Massachusetts law allows its residents to have and use marijuana, and because they'll also soon be allowed to grow it, they rolled a joint in Massachusetts that was 106 feet long. A marijuana advocacy group called Beantown Greentown enlisted 40 volunteers to help roll a J that exceeded their goal by six feet. Or perhaps they just lost count. Until now, there has been no world record for such a thing, but the Guinness people are being asked to consider it. These activists say they wanted to set a high bar 
with a length not easily beaten. And from our seemed-like-a-good-idea department in Colorado, where weed is also legal under very specific rules, this happened. A guy was trying to sell his old car, so he posted an ad on Craigslist. He got one offer from 39-year-old Sean Langley, hereafter known as The Suspect. Because Sean offered to pay for the car with four pounds of what he called homegrown black market marijuana. He sent the car guy a photo of two big clear bags of greenish-brown buds. And the guy with the car agreed to a meetup. What the suspect didn't know is that the guy with the car is Teller County Sheriff Jason Mikesell. The suspect had brought along a friend for the exchange. They were both arrested because this particular sheriff is running a crackdown on the folks who produce black market homegrown. So many packages coming and going this time of year. The TCBY frozen yogurt shop in Charlotte, North Carolina, got three packages it didn't recognize. And when an employee opened the boxes, they found, between the three of them, $220,000 worth of marijuana. Turns out the packages were supposed to have been delivered to a box at a postal store next door. And Walmart has removed from its website a seven-foot artificial Christmas tree that is covered with artificial marijuana leaves. The tree was from a third-party vendor, and it was called to Walmart's attention when the listing went viral at the hands of a website dedicated to news about marijuana. The weed reporters wrote, This pot-leaf Christmas tree will light up the room and put your mind in the right headspace for holiday cheer. As I said, Walmart pulled the item from its website. The third-party vendor, for the record, is Brands on Sale, Incorporated, in case you need to know. As the number shrinks for people who associate themselves with any religion, the religious observance of Christmas has also diminished. It's fallen off just in the past four years from 59% to 55%. And out of that 55%, Fewer than half see the holiday as more religious than cultural. It is part of our culture, even among non-believers. 90% of us, 90% of Americans, will celebrate the day. When do 90% of Americans agree on anything? Christmas, that's when. Just over half of us say it doesn't matter what greeting you use. So, happy holidays, too. Christmas is about culture and tradition. The question is, whose tradition? Although I had not heard of this, there is apparently a long-standing tradition of hiding a pickle ornament in a Christmas tree. Whomever finds it gets a special gift. So at Six Flags Over Georgia for the past four years, they've invited guests to hang a pickle ornament on the park's Christmas tree. The first 500 people through the gates on Saturday would get a free pickle ornament courtesy of Pier 1 Imports. And they all set out to create a new world record of their own. Most pickle ornaments on a Christmas tree. And in the end, they got to take their pickle home to hide in their own trees. If you see something, say something. When five-year-old Tylon Pittman saw a bit of how the Grinch stole Christmas on his phone, he swung into action. No one decided Tylon was going to steal Christmas and get away with it. So Tylan did what he knew he was supposed to do when he witnessed a crime. He called 911. The dispatcher eventually got Tylan to put his dad on the phone. Dad gave the boy a friendly talking to. Boy, you better stop watching so many cartoons, he said firmly. And then the police showed up. 
to ask Tylon what they should do about these Grinch thefts. He told the officers they should put the Grinch in jail. So on Monday of this week, police in Mississippi gave Tylon a ride to the station to identify the suspect they'd arrested. Sure enough, all big and green was the Grinch, or someone who looked very much like him, inside a cell. Tylon confirmed, yes, that's the guy. But it was also the Grinch who told Tylon, you have saved Christmas for the people of Byram. Your bravery is unmatched. You have saved the day. And everyone's heart grew three sizes that day. Yes, the good news is that Santa's on his way. The bad news, his sleigh is careening out of control. In Warrington, England, Santa was making his way across town, ho-ho-hoing through a loudspeaker mounted on the car that was pulling his sleigh while the reindeer rest up for the big night. Merry Christmas, he would shout as he waved through the streets. But at one point, Santa said, Merry Christmas, everybody. We've got a problem with the car. The clutch has gone. I can't stop. The clutch has gone on the car. We're not sure how he ever did stop, but he did, and no one was injured, and Santa promised to return tonight to try again. And finally, it was not Santa crashing through the roof of a home near San Bernardino, California. It's a good thing octogenarians Claudel and Odell Curry were still watching TV in the living room because while they were, a huge block of ice crashed through their roof and their ceiling and into the bed where they had hoped to soon settle down for a long winter's nap. The ice was the size of a car engine, probably ice from the wing of an aircraft. It was clear. Toilet water is blue. Claudel Curry says there arose such a clatter. I've never heard a noise like that before, he told a reporter, adding, we shiver every time we think we could have been in bed. The wife is still nervous. Happy holidays. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and for supporting my sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back January 4th with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.